This episode is sponsored in part by Thousand Eyes. Thousand Eyes gives you visibility, insights, and actionable intelligence into user experience from every user to every application over any network. So you transform your WAN, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experiences in the cloud and on-premises. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers and snag a fun t-shirt. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. This episode of Heavy Networking is brought to you in part by the WAN Summit. The WAN Summit is a series of conferences on the SD-WAN design and strategy. It's $99 for two days of presentations, roundtables, and SD-WAN vendors where you can learn a hell of a lot in a very short period of time. Check out WANSummit.com for a list of worldwide events, or register for the next event, March 9th or 10th, in New York. Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. Now, I've recently been working with a, uh, a team of people on a DWDM network, and I'm relatively new to DWDM, and it's been an absolute swan dive into the pool of ignorance as I try and learn something about DWDM. And during the process, I've started to think about how this could be useful to people in the Packet Pushers audience, of course, because what we're trying to do. And I've, what I've done is put together a set of topics and I've engaged Chris Tracy, who works at ESNet. Now, ESNet is a scientific network in the US. They run a fairly large network and he's been putting together DW networks for quite some time. So without further ado, I welcome to the show, Chris Tracy. And Chris, now, you were a willing volunteer. Actually, you got volunteered by somebody else, and you've sort of been working in DWDM for a long period of time. And what I sort of wanted to think about is start off with sort of a little bit of a discussion around business motivations from the point of view, if you're a network engineer who's been doing IP routing for, say, 10 years or more, you're probably used to buying your DWDM as a service from a telco. But increasingly, it's becoming for a certain type of enterprise where they actually want to build their own DWDM, especially for data center interconnect. So I sort of wanted to think about when is the right time, do you think, to talk about owning a DWDM network or building a DWDM? Is there a right time or is there a good time? Sure. Um, so just to, you know, I've, I've been working with DWDM for over 15 years now. Um, and it, you know, yes, there there is a right time, I, I think, when, when you need uh, – access to just huge amounts of raw bandwidth. Um, that's uh, certainly the time to start thinking about it. Um, it, it. Of course, like anything, it depends on your on your application. And um, it doesn't necessarily replace the need for uh, other types of, you know, layer two, layer three type of equipment. Um, you may still need all that stuff to, you know, build your differentiated services and other types of uh, services to, to handle your applications. Um, but one of the things that DWDM can uh, provide to you is that that access to huge amounts of raw bandwidth. Yeah, I think the bandwidth thing is a big one because you're talking um, DWM can sort of like take a fiber optic cable and normally you might put 110 gig or 100 gig on it. And with DWM, what you're talking about doing is 12, 24, 48, or even 96, 10 gigs on the same fiber optic cable. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we've been used to, you know, putting, you know, one gig, 10 gig over single fiber optic cables, right? In, you know, many enterprise applications. You can talk about something like called coarse wavelength division, uh, where you're putting just a smaller number of channels. Uh, when you start talking about dense wave division multiplexing, um, you're, you're really talking about a lot of channels, uh, potentially up to, uh, 40, 80 channels, uh, mm -hmm. even going into, you know, some systems, um, depending on how you decide to lay out your DWDM system, you can, yep. you know, you can really get a high channel count. 
gets expensive. <laughs> it getting can, eight, but yeah, getting eighty right. channels onto a single fiber is expensive. If you think about it from the point of the active gear, though, we'll talk more about chassis and rodems and stuff that actually drives that. But getting eighty channels onto a fiber has a whole bunch of problems associated with it. Um, sure, think think about the case of uh, something like a um, a submarine cable operator, right? Mm-hmm. Where they they only have a a sort of a limited number of, of fiber optic cables that go across a, under a giant body of water, right? And <laughs> yeah. so they, you know, they really want to maximize that fiber as much as possible and put as much, as much data across, right? And so, so, you know, you wouldn't want to just put one channel across. You, you really want to pack as many channels as possible. Well, the solution that I've used a lot of is putting DWDM between data centers, although normally that involves bringing a service provider in. They install the DWDM units on their fiber, their dark fiber, and then into the DWDM I can drive fiber channel or 10 gig Ethernet. And sometimes what I can do is use four or eight channels out of the DWDM and then it mysteriously appears out the other end and I've got you know, multiple fiber channels and multiple Ethernets at the other side. That's normally how I've thought about it. Absolutely. Um, so, so things like data center interconnect, where you know, if you have a topology for uh, your network, where you know you have a, a, a need for just a huge amount of bandwidth between several places or several points, that's certainly a great application for for DWDM. Uh, the other great thing about DWDM is it's um, it's agnostic to the framing type. So like you mentioned, whether it's uh, whether you're putting IP over it, uh, whether you're putting fiber channel, um, you can even put uh, HDTV streams over, you know, over these type of Natively, yeah, natively, yeah. Right. That would seem a bit inefficient in the era of IP television on the face of it. You mentioned coarse wave division multiplexing before. What are the limitations of coarse wave? Like coarse wave division multiplexing uses very wide spectral bandwidth, if I understand it. They transmit the signal over 100, I think it's 100 kilohertz bands, 120 kilohertz bands, but you can only have four or six of them in it. And so you have a very small amount of bandwidth and it doesn't go very far. Is that right? Well, right. The spectral bands are, are much wider, right? So if you can think of um, the, you know, the spectrum that, that you can you can tune a laser to and send send light on a particular frequency. The actual spectral bands in CWDM are are much wider, right? Whereas with DWDM, you can get down to very very narrow channels, right? And so it might be uh, as small as fifty gigahertz. Um, mm-hmm. Some systems will even run channels in, in even smaller increments. But but these days, uh, many of the channels in a DWDM system are going to be something along the lines of, of 50 gigahertz or so, yeah. whereas uh, CWDM is is generally much much wider. And that bands. makes it cheaper because your lasers don't have to be so perfect and your fiber Correct. optic doesn't have to be so perfect, right? That's right. Yeah. So you have to worry about things like uh, drifting of your lasers. You know, the tolerances get tighter and tighter at, with DWDM applications versus CWDM. So you can imagine the, the cost implications there. So when would you use CWDM? Like between two buildings and you wanted to get like, uh, sort of like the, when I looked this up online, it sort of said distances of up to 100 kilometers and you can do like 18 channels on a single fiber using CWDM. That seems pretty long and pretty heavy to me, or I thought it was much shorter and much narrower. Sure. The thing about uh, all these technologies is that they vary a lot, right? So so what you get from one vendor is going to be very different from another vendor, is very different from another vendor. Um, so it, it really is, you know, tailored to specific applications. And so it will very much depend on like 
the type of laser you choose and how um, clean is the fiber. You know, th- there are many parameters in- involved, right? Because it, it is analog transmission, of course. And so many times a lot of the claims that you will see in, you know, in spec sheets or marketing sheets, um, they're just that, right? They're, they're sort of, they're, they're kind of a, a best approximation, but not necessarily they're more of a theoretical the maximum. Like if everything was perfect and the wind was coming from the right direction and all the angels lined up on the head of a pin, you could actually get this distance. But the reality is, is that, you know, the more I read about fiber optic performance in DWDM environments, it really comes down to how, what exactly your fiber optic is made out of, you know, is it G652, you know, D or something, and then how good the installation is. Is that? Yes, to some extent. Um, I wouldn't say that they always market the, uh, you know, the best case, like you described, everything coming together, you know, uh, you know, all stars align kind of situation. I think they do try to more shoot for what is the most average or common case. Uh, but you can find yourself in situations where you're actually in a much better situation uh, than maybe what they anticipated. You know, many of the fiber optic cables in the ground are, are very old, Um and you might have just purchased some brand new cable that was just just put into the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might be starting off from a better place than uh, than they may have modeled or, or anticipated for a typical case. Let's jump on the topic of optical cabling, like a fiber optic cabling in a you know a DWDM context. Everything I've read is that if you're sort of going, I don't know, fifty to hundred kilometers, it's pretty okay. You're not going to have too much problem. But if you're starting to get longer than that, it really comes down to how good your fiber is, how good the installation is. Like it really seems like you have to have a really strong testing regime to validate that the fiber is fit for purpose. Is that correct? Absolutely, right. And uh, assuming that you can get the fiber where where you want it, and you know, because in many cases you may even have to have to build out to a location, right, where you don't have fiber to a particular place. Uh, assuming you can get fiber to a location, it is typical for you know vendors of this sort to either provide you a certain you know certain testing options for certain types of tests that you may or may not be interested in, right? And, and again, this comes back to what is your application? What do you plan to do with this fiber? Uh, are you going to run a single uh, 10 gig channel on it, a single 100 gig channel on it, mm-hmm. just connect in some high powered client optics, or are you going to be running CWDM or DWDM, mm-hmm. right? And so in many cases, uh, your testing strategy will be tailored to your particular application. In the case of DWDM, as we talked about earlier, tolerances really get tighter and tighter and more strict. So the the testing regime, it, it gets pretty intense, right? There yeah. are a, a, a large number of different types of tests that you can run, many of which will not matter for certain applications that are that are more simple applications. Uh, but for a D, in a DWDM context, many of these things become important, especially at longer and longer distances. Things that I've read about would be things like uh, you send, a, if the fiber optic bends too many places, the signal actually um, drops away more because the signal actually disperses as it goes around a corner. So if there's a lot of bends in the cable, the signal um, gets weaker to some extent, but it also Absolutely. disperses because it travels, you know, signals that are on the outside of the bend go f- don't reflect as well. And and this causes the square wave to break down into a d- and disperse to something where it might actually affect it uh, uh, over a sufficient distance. 
That is absolutely true. Um, you can even see this yourself. Uh, I sometimes do this in demonstrations. I've done some outreach at you know for uh, for STEM activities and K through twelve, and so we'll, we'll actually take fiber optic cables, microscopes, um, light sources, and things like that, and and show people what what how how a lot of this stuff works. Um, so you can actually take a, a visible light source with a eight hundred and fifty nanometer. Um, uh, or any kind of like visible light, you know, something in the visible light range and actually stick that into a fiber and then just start to bend it. Uh, and you'll actually see, you know, you can actually see where the, uh, the light will start to come out of the bend. So you can actually get a, almost a visual, um, kind of idea of what sort of bend radius you can, you can achieve. And different types of cables actually have different tolerances, uh, for different types of bend radius. So even fiber jumpers that you're using just to connect between patch panels. You know, for example, there are newer types of cables uh, called bend insensitive fibers that have, um, uh, they're, not, they're not completely bend insensitive, but uh, they, have a, they allow you to, uh, to go a- around tighter and tighter bends uh, to the point where you don't have as much of those, those types of effects that you're describing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just super fascinating to me because usually with Ethernet, you just sort of have this plug and pray sort of thing in it and you don't actually have to pray it just works but then when i started digging into the you know the sort of the power that the signals launched at in general 10 gig 100 gig ethernet and the sensitivity of the receivers you've got this you know 20 db of of loss that you can sustain and to lose 20 db in an ethernet fiber inside a data center or, or even inside of a campus is almost impossible really Depending on your patch panel infrastructure, uh, you know, <laughs> you would be surprised. Uh, as, or, or in a dense urban environment, it, it depends. Again, you know how clean, how, how old that fiber infrastructure is. Some campuses have very old fiber infrastructure that was maybe not, you know, with mechanical splicing, uh, and ter- you know, termination uh, that is questionable. Um, so you can run into all kinds of different situations with, with when you're dealing with different fiber infrastructures that are, you know, structured cabling that has been pre-installed. So my general sense is that I've always worked on the general assumption that if I could do it with Ethernet, there's no guarantee I could do it with DWDM or CW. I really should test the fiber and it's not just shine a light down it. I actually have to get a proper fiber optic testing kit and start to met testing things like chromatic dispersion, attenuation profiles, um, end-to-end optical link loss. I mean, that's the obvious one, but that's the very least about it. You also want to know, um, you know, how much dispersion you're getting as, it, as the signal transmits down the fiber. Yes. So there are many specialized um, testing apparatus, uh, you know, like you described them, kits, test sets and kits uh, that you can use to do this type of testing. Um, and like I mentioned, many times um, the the resellers of this fiber will offer to do this for you. You could also hire your own third party uh, or you could do it yourself. If you want to, you know, you can rent this type of equipment, you can buy it, uh, depending on sort of the extent of your installation uh, and how often you plan to, you know, many people just do this type of testing uh, very infrequently. So they just rent this type of equipment. Um, But like you described, some of the the most basic uh, types of tests that you need are just, you know, what is the loss, right? Because all signals are going to, you know, uh, there's attenuation as you you know yeah. propagate this this glass medium, uh, so you have to deal with 
uh, just basic, you know, the, the signal just gets, uh, you know, noisy and, and loses, uh, yeah, loses it strength. It through the fiber optic. It actually translates into heat. Some of the energy is absorbed by the, the atoms in the glass pore. Right, that's, right. That's loss per kilometer. Um, and then you have loss where it meets the patch panel, butts up to the pigtail, and there's a point, you know, usually an allowance of 0.1 dB per, per splice and so forth. Right. Right, these these cables will be spliced um, in in the ground at many different points. So we look at things like um, splice loss, uh, how many splices there are, how many connectors there are. So is that um, a problem when you buy dark fiber from a dark fiber provider? Is that they might actually go and connect the fiber? They don't necessarily go and trench a fiber from your place to where you're going to. They might have fibers running all over the place, and then when you buy it from them, they actually run off and patch it all up. Most of them do have fiber going, all, like you described, all over the place. Um, of, of course, where it gets interesting is, you know, does it? How close does it come to uh, where you are uh, or where you want to be? Uh, if you are already situated in a um, in a large data center, you're probably in a good position, right? Because there there are probably already fiber providers built out to where you are. But yeah. if you are in an office a building, a colo facility is like a, a bucket of poop and flies us. Can smell the poop and fly around, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> to dark fiber and DWM providers. I mean, that that's where the that's where the poop is. Uh, the customers, I mean, the customers. Uh, so there's a fair chance if you spend money putting in infrastructure, it's going to get bought by somebody. Absolutely. So that is one way to look at it. Now, if when you do purchase uh, or if you do go to uh, to, to buy a, a service like this from a dark fiber provider, uh, there are all different ways that it might be assembled and put together for you. Uh, it may actually be that they connect patch panels in the middle mm. and, and patch together a path for you, or they may splice the whole thing for you, or it might be a mixture of both. Uh, that, that is going to vary from one one to another. Maybe you have to go and get them to splice it if you can't get sufficient power through the signal, power through the cable. So if they try and patch it and then you do the tests, they may actually go back and splice it to try and get the loss profile within tolerance. That's absolutely, yes, absolutely. Uh, again, this is all kind of coming back to what is your application? Are you just running a single channel over this or are you running DWDM? And if you're in running those 40 channels of 100 gig over it between two data centers and it's mission critical, you probably want to get make sure this is perfect, right? Right, you're going to need to you're going to need to have it spliced, uh, or you're going to want to reduce those splices and make them as perfect as possible. Uh, you you know you do lose the ability though once you splice together, uh, you do lose that ability to go and test at that point. So there is something to be said about having uh, yeah. a patch panel there, right? Yeah, because you want to be able to go out and drop the tester in, take the cable out of service, and do some testing if you need to be to test where the degradation happened because the fiber isn't a fixed thing. It degrades over time. We don't always think of fiber plant as being mechanically under stress, but out in the environment, if it, even if it's dug into the ground, but sometimes it's aerial fiber, it's under a lot of physical stress, even if it's, if it's hanging in the air and it's being blown around in storms and in the snow and stuff. So it does actually change over time and it's at risk of, you know, problems happening. It, it does, right. Some of those characteristics, like you mentioned with dispersion, um, there are two main types of dispersion that uh, is commonly tested is chromatic dispersion or CD or polarization mode dispersion, PMD. Now, chromatic dispersion is more inherent in the fiber and the fiber type. 
So you're not going to get a lot of variation um, in chromatic dispersion. It's determined by the um, actual makeup of the fiber optic glass. That's correct. Yes. So a certain, you know, SMF28 fiber will have a, a, you know, sort of an expected amount of chromatic dispersion uh, versus a different cable. And chromatic dispersion is really sort of a, a spreading of the signal. You know, if you if you look this up, you can find some great uh, depictions of this. Now, polarization mode dispersion, however, is more linked to physical stresses of the fiber. So things like aerial cable uh, or fiber that runs along bridges. Uh, is often sometimes under more mechanical stress where the, the fiber is either being pulled like uh, laterally uh, or, you know, you might have a situation where there's high winds or a, a train is going across a bridge, you know, provide, you know, and there's a lot of vibration or even seasonal sort of variations uh, where there's a large temperature fluctuation. Or, you well, know, a good-sized bridge will sh- grow and shrink by a couple of feet as the temperature, you know, as it expands. It- the, you know, when it gets hotter, the bridge will expand, and when it gets colder, it'll shrink. And the cables that are tied onto it have to be, you know, able to be moved around to that sort of extent. They do. They have to be. Uh, they have to have a proper amount of strain relief. Um, out here in California, where we have uh, earthquakes occasionally, uh, certain, you know, th- those types of natural events will will also cause issues. So you have, um, you know, we've even seen cables where. Uh, along fault lines where additional strain relief has been put. Let's pause the podcast for a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, Thousand Eyes. Like it or not, your organization is embracing the cloud, and that might be great for the business, but for network architects and IT ops teams, it can be a service delivery nightmare. Why? Well, you're depending on cloud providers, ISPs, and third-party apps for business-critical services. And even though you don't control those networks, you do own the service delivery, which means if performance is bad, people are going to come looking for you. And this is where Thousand Eyes can help. You can take advantage of Thousand Eyes agents across the cloud, within your enterprise, all the way down to the endpoint. These agents actively monitor network behavior and topologies and how they affect application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can correlate multiple layers of performance data from L2 to L7, including BGP routing and DNS, to quickly identify problem areas and dramatically reduce your mean time to repair. You can pinpoint the root cause of device faults, congestion, Wi-Fi quality, DDoS attacks, and more. And you don't have to keep all this intelligence to yourself. You can easily share events, metrics, and dashboards with your vendors and customers so that you can collaborate to resolve problems faster. Now, Thousand Eyes also aggregates anonymized real-time data from a collective data set so they can generate insights about large-scale issues across the internet, including their severity and breadth, as well as likely root cause. Now, if all that sounds good to you, here's a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. And while you're there, get yourself a free Thousand Eyes t-shirt. That's thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. Manage every network like it's your own. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. And now, back to the podcast. You said before that you might rent a lot of this rather than own it. One of the things that I've noticed in some of the testing uh, media, uh, you know, when looking at the testing vendors, is they actually have inline testing equipment. So you can actually put it in place so you don't have to unplug it to validate that the cable's okay. But at the same time, what I also see is that the DWM switches themselves, the quones in the DWDM, also can tell you about the performance of the cable. Which of those is right? Is there a right and a wrong answer here? Or is it, you know, as always, it, it depends? <laughs> there's, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, again, there, there is um, 
So there's a lot of complexity here. It does depend on uh, sort of what parameters you're interested in. Some equipment does tell you uh, important details about the cable. Um, and sometimes it may be your your transponders or your you know the devices that at the ends the essentially the modems that are that are um, basically transmitting the analog signal and also receiving the analog signal and doing the analog to digital conversion. Those devices will often have uh, be able to provide you a lot of important performance characteristics about what is going on. But even the even the DWDM layer itself can sometimes um, give you crucial information. Uh, the, if you're using uh, amplifiers, for example, uh, amplifiers have uh, some amplifiers have mechanisms to give you back performance monitoring details that can tell you about sort of the overall health of the of the cabling. Uh, you know what type of uh, you know, what type of performance you're seeing. Um, in addition, like you said, some of the testing apparatus, like uh, in particular, one very common test used in this industry is, is OTDR, optical time domain reflectometry. And so that is a uh, technology similar to what you can do for copper, copper cables with TDR. Um, you can do this in for optical cables as well, and it'll give you some idea of, of how the attenuation changes over the length of the cable. And some equipment even has the ability to, uh, to do this um, in the system itself, you know, while, while, you're, while your channels are, are up and running. Mm. And I've just, I was looking at those and I was going like, I could see why I might do that, but I imagine they're fairly expensive because they have to be in line and they would have to have a switch. And uh, some of them are, actually can work while the DWDM is active and some of them don't. Probably that's enough talk about cabling, I guess, but I I just wanted to, if for people who are listening and thinking, why am I talking about cabling for the better part of 15 minutes? And I think the answer is for DWDM, it's actually probably half the work. Is that a fair statement? It is a large, it is a large portion of the work, basically, you know, finding the fiber, um, getting it installed and to the point where you actually have access to it, where you can, you know, where you can put a photon in on one side and you can get a photon out on the other end. Um, it's uh, it, it, there is a lot of work there to to getting that to perform in a in a way that will work for your application. Again, this is all about you know getting it to perform to your requirements. Uh, you really have to understand what are your requirements, not only just today, but what about in the future. Uh, oftentimes, these this cabling, you might be agreeing, um, you might be agreeing to just a short term sort of uh, like borrowing of this cable, right? Because you never really own it. You're yeah. you're kind of leasing this this cable yeah. uh, from these providers, and so it depends on your situation or what kind of how you've negotiated contractually. You know, maybe you're just using this cable for a year, but maybe you've agreed to use it for ten or twenty years. Uh, so if you're in that kind of situation, you really have to start thinking about. Okay, what are my requirements today? What are my requirements five to ten years from now? Is this is this cable going to perform well enough for me ten years down the road? Do I even understand what my requirements are at that point? Um, and how will you know? Because you can't go back to the the provider and say, "Oh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I agreed to this for ten years, but this isn't." You, know, uh, you, you might be able to work something out, but that you you really need to think about this in advance before yeah, agreeing yeah. a very long term. It's, it's an interesting one because I was looking. I'm working on this project, and they have several thousand kilometers of fiber, and they want to light it up into a network. And the fiber itself is 
was installed anywhere from the 1970s to the 2010s. In some of the fibre is just, you know, we don't know what its performance will be and we don't know if we'll actually be able to use it for WDM at all. Some of it's being used for one gig Ethernet today, but that's not necessarily a certainty that I'll be able to use it for any sort of... And in some cases, I might be able to use it for 10 gig and for a handful of channels. Is my This is my working assumption. I might only be able to use, you know, 10 or 20 channels out of a 40-channel circuit because the other channels might not work but in other cases i might be able to get all the full spectrum it, it's it's going to vary yeah the good news is um modem technology has really come a long way um so that that's the good news uh even even these fibers that you would think are uh very poorly performing you know at yeah. least from like a from a fiber characterization perspective um Modem technology has gotten uh, so advanced now, and and I've I've kind of you know I've sort of grown up with modems. I I, I you know I started off with you know bulletin board systems back in the you know 110 300 baud sort of uh, time frame, right? And have just you know watched mm, yeah. modems uh, you know evolve over you're time. About so now modems here, you're not talking about telephone right. line modems, yeah. Absolutely right, but but you know I've sort of followed that development uh, over my career, and at this point, these optical modems are performing um, uh, so well, and they have so much um, ability to to adapt to the different situations you might find on these different fibers um, that you can't, you know, you, you, it's a rapidly evolving field, right? So yes. uh, it, it, you would be surprised at what, what modern modems today can do, even with fiber right. that is installed, you know, 30 years ago. All right. Well, let's talk about the active equipment that then goes on the end of the fiber, because this was an area of, well, this felt like mystical magic when I started to dig into it. If I'm going to buy a box that goes on to the end of it, I get, usually buy a chassis, and in the chassis I'm going to have a, a, a management engine. I'm going to have a Rodham, the Rodham, usually a Rodham, which is a reconfigurable optical ad drop multiplexer, and then I'm going to have some cards that do the signal processing. Putting all that together seems really complicated for some reason, I, and I didn't seem at all intuitive to me. Is that something you'd agree with, you or is it, does it make sense to you that this is the way it is? No, I, I would agree with this. is This is largely the way it is. If you if you want a um, if you want commercial off the shelf sort of solutions, you can go and buy a turnkey sort of setup, right? That will mm. do all this. And it's um, now this this market is becoming more commoditized than it has been in the past. Um, but for the most part, you know, if you want to do you know, build something like this, uh, you don't go and buy all the individual components yourself, right? Mm. Um, you can, right? There are, uh, there are people who build and run fiber, dark fiber networks, um, and build DWDM, uh, networks using, using raw components, um, and, and, you know, putting them all together and, and assembling all this sort of from the ground up. Um, but, but many, Many times you would just go and buy a turnkey sort of solution that would uh, that would run on both ends of this this fiber that you've just purchased or, mm. or leased. Okay, so a Rodham is important because that's the optical launch system. That's the thing that fires the signal and receives the signal coming off the fiber optic. And I mean, boy, oh boy, that's they're close to magic, really, because you're shooting um, a laser signal down a piece of fiber optic. You're talking about the signals are separated by four nanometers and you have to be able to decode 20, 40, or 80 of them out of a single fiber. 
Um, well, uh, so uh, one one thing to understand there is that a, a rotom is um, it's really only needed if you need switching, right? And so if you're looking at just sort of a data center interconnect kind of model, um, a rotom may not you may not need that, right? Um, it's really for for switching purposes. So if you have sort of a meshy type of topology uh, where you have multiple sites and you want to you know, potentially switch these different signals between different locations, uh, whether that's for, you know, to address uh, bandwidth on demand type of situations. Like I really need a lot of bandwidth over here for this uh, event or something, and then I need to mm -hmm. switch it and move it over here. Uh, you might be doing it for that reason. You might be doing it for protection or restoration reasons. Um, Rotoms are very good for those types of applications. If it's just a simple sort of, I just need tons of raw bandwidth between data center A and data center B, and I went and got a cable between the two, you can actually accomplish that without the use of a rotom. Um, right. You may, you know, in, instead of using a rotom for protection type of purposes, you may just, you just may acquire two fiber cables between your two data centers that take two different physical routes and, and get two different data center interconnect type of uh, setups, right? Where it just gives you all the raw bandwidth of that fiber without all the complexity of the oh, rotom switching. So yeah. a rotom is an add drop multiplexer. And so the add drop part means then that I can take a wavelength here, drop it off, and then I could also add in another one. So I could actually have a path going through a, a chassis and I could pick the path off and say, all right, well, this path is actually going off to the East Coast, but and so I'm going to unplug it, take it off the, the path that it was on, and switch it mm -hmm. onto a new path. Is that the idea? Right. And if, if you know, so think about the, the, the acronym ROADM, R-O-A-D-M. So take off the R, okay? If you want to kind of go back in history a little bit, before we had ROADMs, we had OADMs. Uh, and so these were, these were not really very re reconfigurable, right? It really <laughs> was just, it was just an ad drop multiplexer. Um, you could, so I think it, the story I heard was you actually had to turn them off, like the circuit went down while you reconfigured them. Something like that. Oftentimes, that is it, it was often intrusive, right? To yeah. to do certain types of operations, um, especially when, because this, these systems, when they were in their early days, uh, required a lot of manual sort of tweaking of performance and tuning, uh, uh, where you know you were really sort of getting in there and, and you know making sure all the power levels were you know equal and it required a lot of hand tuning. Um, a lot of that has gone by the wayside now with more modern equipment. Um, but, you know, before we had rotoms, we just had basic add drop multiplexers. And all these things did were, were allow you to take, uh, you know, a bunch of different lasers, essentially, that were all mm. tuned to different frequencies and just multiplex them all together onto one fiber. Uh, and then you put an amplifier on it so you can make it the distance. Uh, and, and, you know, you're, you're off to the races, right? That's, that's really... Um, uh, where we kind of started from, right? right. Okay. So you, there's different types of DWDM. There's simple DWDM in a sense, which is point-to-point -point or maybe you're just picking – because we're not talking about packets here. We're talking about a path. The mm -hmm. lambda represents a path, an A and a B end. So That's right. if I'm calculating this is my point A and this is my point B, I might have – if I've only got one A and one B, that is – you know, point to point, then I don't need to be able to switch the paths onto different Swiss, you know, units or different fibers to, and so, and as you said, if you've got to protect the path, 
So if I've got a DWDM ring and I've got 30 locations I'm trying to support, I might have half the paths going to the right ring and the other half going to the left. But if one of the paths goes down, then I start to fail over. And then, of course, I can get into far more complex scenarios where I might have full or partial meshes between the units as I try and strive for reaching more customers so I can unmultiplex a, a, a drop a, a lambda so I can reach a customer. But at the same That's time, right. I might, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. So I think the, the most basic type of DWDM system like you described is, is, is sort of like a point-to-point type of uh, application, right, where you have maybe a single pair of fiber and you have two sites, uh, A and Z, and you have, uh, you know, an, uh, an ad drop mux on one end, you have an ad drop mux on the other end, and you're simply, you know, you're just basically getting that fan in, fan out kind of mm. thing, but at the optical layer. So you can put many channels onto a single fiber and just get, just extract all that raw bandwidth out of that fiber, you know, mm. to, to mm. give you, you know, the ability to put multiple hundred gig channels or multiple 10 gig channels, whatever it is you're trying to do. But then the more complex, more slightly more complicated scenario described is more like a ring where you have um, not one fiber, but, you know, many pairs of fibers that are forming a ring. So they come all the way back to the same point. And then in that case, you can actually start building channels that go between different points on the ring. And, you know, then like, as you, as you touched on, it sort of becomes a question. It's like, well, how are you doing protection? Uh, You don't have to do it at the optical layer, but you could, um, that's where it's, it's, you sort of get into some of the cost trade-offs of, uh, is it more cost effective for my application to do protection at the optical layer? Does it make more sense to do it at the, at the layer two or layer, layer three, you know, type yeah. of protection options, right? There's a big price difference between a Rodham and a, and a straight ad drop multiplexer unit. Like the Rodham seem to be like something uh, like, a, uh, as best as I can tell you're talking like a half a million dollars for a basic unit with a single interface in it. Um, and an ad drop multiplexer is like one quarter of that, I guess. So that's, it makes sense to use uh, Rodham's where you need to, but ad drop multiplexers where you can't. Well, I can't talk much about pricing, but, um, um, but you know, a Rodham is certainly a more com- complex uh, device, right? It, it's going to incorporate, you know, switching. It, 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 it has a lot more complexity, a lot more uh, devices and components within it. Uh, so certainly the cost is higher than a, than a straightforward, you know, simple ad drop multiplexer. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm roughing it out, but I'm just trying to give people a sense of like these aren't twenty thousand dollar devices. There, some of the some of the Rodham gear that I've looked at it starts at half a million street price list price. You're sort of looking hundred eight hundred thousand dollars in some cases. I'm not at all confident that I understand the pricing very well because the chassis have Rodhams, and then they have these cards that drive the signals, and then there's cards that do multi rate. So if you've got a mix of Let's say you've got a, a DWDM ring and some of it's 100 gig and some of it's 10 gig. You're not, you actually have to have cards inside the chassis that run at 10 gig and at 100 gig. So it actually gets not just a little bit more complicated, but exponentially more complicated because you're carrying multiple signals over the same lambdas. You're not, and, and the, the price just gets way out of whack. Well, it, it, it varies, right? And, and so we can even start to talk here a little bit about um, 
one of the more recent developments in, in DWDM systems is the idea of, um, you may have heard of open rotum or the idea of uh, disaggregation in, yes. in, the, mm-hmm. uh, in the optical layer. And so at a, you know, there are many different models for how you can envision this, right? So you may be thinking, um, you know, disaggregation to you might mean just simply breaking apart the uh, transponder devices, right, that are doing the analog to digital conversion and the digital to analog. Or, or really, you could think of it as the um, the optical to electrical conversion. And the, so they often, in, in optical terminology, we usually use the term OEO. Yeah. Uh, to, to go from optical to electrical and back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, the analog to digital conversion that's happening at the transponder layer. Yeah. Um, so some of the more, you know, recent developments are are the idea that um, these, these transponders may not even live in the same chassis that your DWDM stuff lives in. Historically, they have, right? It, it, you, you have usually... Um, been putting, you know, like you described, 10 gig cards or 100 gig mm. cards or whatever types of, you know, uh, OC48 cards you might insert insert into your DWDM chassis mm. uh, would would historically all be coming from the the same manufacturer. Uh, this is not unlike, um, you know, the TDM devices. If you if you have familiarity with those, uh, where you know, in telephone switching networks, where many of the Many of those devices that would uh, translate and do the aggregation, and you know, basically uh, put you know lots of subrate signals into a higher rate signal, mm-hmm. they worked very in a very similar way, where all the all the line cards kind of came from the same manufacturer. But now we're seeing a trend where more and more it's possible to disaggregate these systems and right. actually separate out these functional this functionality between two two chassis. Right. So at this point, I've got a fiber optic network. I've got boxes at key points where the fiber optics end. I've probably got a few of them around the place. I've got multiple units in the core of the network. I'm imagining I'm running Rodham. So I've got the flexibility to add wavelengths on and strip wavelengths off as needs be so that I can switch the paths around the network as I want. At the edge of the network, I've got um, add drop multiplexes because where I'm just decoding the signal from optical to electrical, so breaking out into Ethernet, I don't actually need to do the reconfiguration. I just need to terminate the fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of like two levels of devices at, in the network at that point. Does that make sense? That's correct, yeah. It helps to think of them as sort of two layers of, of devices. You know, there is the layer where you're sort of integrating with the Ethernet layer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you kind of have the, it's almost, you know, you kind of think of the Ethernet side as the digital side and the DWDM side is more the analog side, the analog transmission. Let me interrupt for a quick second to talk about today's sponsor, WAN Summit. Networking professionals are gathering at the WAN Summit in New York this March. And at any WAN Summit, you'll know, networking professionals join to share their unique WAN experiences. This conference series lets you understand and appreciate how others are tackling the same experiences as you. People get up on stage and talk about how they selected and deployed their SD-WAN and what strategies they use to boost bandwidth while minimising the cost. And people are increasingly talking about security in the SD-WAN context. 
And it's really interesting to get around roundtables and talk to other people about how their networks work, what their routers are, and how they're looking at adopting SD-WAN or deploying it already. Now, WAN summits happen all around the world, and you can find a full list of them at wansummit.com, and I mean around the world, Australia, UK, Europe, New York, all over the place. But this WAN summit is happening in March 9 to 10th at the Hilton Midtown. It's their seventh year in New York. It's their seventh year in New York. They're expecting over 360 WAN professionals, which is a pretty good crowd. And as an enterprise, you register with a special rate of only $99. Plus, listeners of the Packet Pushers get an extra 20% off with the code Packet Pushers when they register for New York. So that's 80 bucks to get down to our conference all about SD-WAN that's well worth doing. Again, all the details are at wansummit.com, as you think, and we hope to see you there. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so now then... Um, when I break out, then some of the chassis then have a special breakout panel because it, my understanding is that the breakout panel sometimes is actually passive because it actually feeds up like a, a 24 core MPO or MTP connector to break out into the patch panels. Um, right. So I think you're talking about um, what would commonly be referred to as the filters or the mux demux kind of stage of the DWDM yeah. system, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm not sure. This is what I'm learning as I'm talking to you here. So you know, stick. Well, there are sure. Well, there are active and passive options uh, today. Yeah. So some of the passive options that you were you were describing uh, would be something like um, what they call an AWG MUX, mm. and this is basically a device. It's an all passive device uh, where a, for example, if you can you can think of. Uh, all the lasers are sort of connected into separate ports on this panel. And on the backside, this, uh, this device is basically taking all these fiber inputs and then muxing them all into one fiber. And in the reverse direction, in the demux stage, it's taking one fiber and it's splitting off all the different colors, all mm. the different wavelengths of light. So there are passive solutions like that where, you know, it's a just very, very simple device. Could you do something like that? And so that's they're fully passive. There's no powered here because they're just literally bringing it into a prism and then focusing it onto a single fiber, right? It's uh, it's actually not not a necessarily a prism, but the uh, sorry, I should have uh, the AWG yeah. is uh, an arrayed waveguide grating, and so um, uh, it, it's probably easier to look at a picture of these types of devices if you mm. if you look up uh, AWG MUX. Uh, you can see how these things work. Uh, but essentially, um, it, they're very simple devices, right? So there's there's no no power required. Uh, it essentially does work basically like the way you would think of as a prism, where yeah. you know you have light coming in one side and all the colors being split out on the I've other got side. I've got twenty. I've got twelve ports of hundred gig coming in, and then there's a cable coming out, which is a single fiber optic, which with all of them, all of those Ethernets, and then at the other end, I plug it back into another one, and then it breaks them back out again, and it's fully passive. That sounds like magic. Those are the fully passive options. Now, those devices have um, have certain intrinsic limitations de- depending on your application, right? So they are uh, they are static in a sense, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know, one port on that on that panel, like you describe, is is sort of hard coded to a particular color, right? So you can't change the light, you know, the light that goes into that port has to yeah. be of a certain yeah. frequency and it cannot be anything else, right? Or else the, you know, it's just going to get essentially discarded, right? Because the, the it's a filter, right? So it's really only accepting light of a certain frequency to come in on a certain port. 
Yeah, yeah. But I could certainly take, you know, 10, 10 gigs in, 10, 10 gigs out and just have Absolutely. a single fibre optic between the two and that's a, a way of getting bandwidth between two points without having to run 10, you know, run 20 pair, uh, 10 pairs of fibre. Correct. And, and we've, um, you know, you can even think of a, a, the most, a very simple application is even within a data center. Say if you only had a single pair of fiber from, you know, one side of a data center to the other side of the same data center, you could even use these, uh, these AWG devices to sort of, you know, make the most of that single pair of fiber, right? As long as you're, as long as the loss budget worked out, you can actually take, um, you know, DWDM optics that, you know, like an XFP form factor or SFP uh, that are that are DWDM, you can actually plug a bunch of these into an AWG MUX and put a bunch of channels over a single fiber that doesn't even leave a data center. It just goes from one side of a data center to another. Uh, now, to get out of the data center, you're going to need more equipment, amplifiers, and, you know, probably management devices to, to, to really help you run something like that right but uh sort of you you know that would be sort of a, a poor man's wdm solution in a within a data center you could you yeah. could use a uh just an awb device just by itself on both ends if you had a very large data center but it was further yeah it could cut down on your cable consumption between i imagine if you have like one of those um uh fairly large data centers you got four halls like it's very common for enterprises to build a start off with two holes and then have plans to build three and four, mm -hmm. um, like their physical rooms. And they have four, at least in companies that I've worked for, very large companies. And they'll build a data center with four, you know, football pitch size rooms of data center capability. And the idea is you build one today, two tomorrow, and then three and four is planned for 10 years time or something like that. And it could get you a, sure. long, a long way. Yeah, and I've I've even I've even seen um, cases where uh, a customer of a data center may pay per fiber cross connect within a data center. Uh, so this is one one you know sort of cheap way to cut down on your cross connect fees, right? If again, if you can if you can sort of withstand the link budget. Um, you know, because these, these things have a, a good bit of insertion loss through them. But if it all works out with your with your link budget for your optics, uh, you could potentially just, you know, use one or two cross connects to run 20 or, or so, you know, wavelengths instead of right, buying 20 yeah. cross connects. And they're fully passive, so they're not, and they don't, they've got no service contracts, you know, and you could probably just buy some spares just in case one broke, I suppose, or something. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So very simple. So, that's one way of thinking laterally or thinking differently is the AWG uh, stuff. Um, so I've got these um, boxes. How hard is it to operate a DWDM network? I've sort of looked at the management platforms and the software, and I'm a bit confused about um, some of these DWDM companies seem to sell like a, de a Java desktop app that lets me sort of talk to the network and I can configure it all. And then other ones have these massive tools that need like a team of 20 people to make them go where do you stand on that matter it's it's all over the map um you know like we've like we've already talked about so much already in this uh, uh in this program um very much depends on your application how complex is you know your topology what are you building right if you have um just two boxes right you know a very simple scenario you know you may not need one of these very complicated uh management systems but if you've got um 
if you've got a ring, you know, or you've got dozens or, you know, hundreds even of these devices, uh, certainly you're going to need something that's sort of what we, what we describe as putting everything on a single pane of glass, yeah. right? Because you, you sort of need one sort of heads up display that just says, okay, everything looks good. You don't, you know, you don't have any problems here uh, or, you know, Oh, you know, you've got a problem here. Right. And it, and it can, can visually, you know, give you an indicator of where you need to focus at. Uh, because a lot of times when, when problems do occur, often you're dealing with a physical problem, right? Yeah. Someone has cut the cable. Uh, a piece of equipment has just suddenly just like stopped working. Yeah. Um, you really want to know the how storm's gone you know, through and the cables. I think the worst one that I can imagine is some sort of storm's gone through and the cable's gone into a degraded state and it's dropping the signal strings now down 10 dB and it's not passing a signal. It's still there. It's just not enough for the circuit to work or something. Absolutely. Uh, lightning strikes, high winds, hurricanes, any of these types of, you know, events can you know, can suddenly cause a perfectly functioning network to, to go haywire. Uh, and so, you you know, in a large system, you really want to be able to localize these faults as quickly as possible uh, because, you know, the, you don't want, you know, things to be um, down for a long time, right? You mm -hmm. may have planned for a certain level of redundancy, but you haven't planned for, you know, multiple events all happening simultaneously. Uh, so sort of once something goes wrong, usually you're you're wanting to fix it quickly and so mm. part of that uh factoring into that is how quickly can you find where the problem is and so these management systems are often designed to 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 help you localize those faults to figure out what it is where it is and how to fix it this is where i was getting and, back to the cable testing before because if it's a cabling fault you might want to have inline test I and mean, if you're on a core run you know, maybe you've got 80 channels active on that core run. You need to know if the cable's gone down because you've just lost a substantial chunk of capacity. And having an active testing suite in place might be the right thing. But if you've only got one customer at the far end, eh, you know, maybe you send a guy out with a handheld tester in a couple of days. It, you know? it, may, it may or may not be necessary. And, and again, that is something that uh, you know, anyone who deploys this type of infrastructure will have to determine, uh, is this extra cost, you know, worth this capability? Is it really going to, is it going to save me time? Is it going to save me money later? Um, you know, what is the impact, right? Because usually if a, like, like you said, say if a, a, a cable does get cut, okay, you're going to know about it right away, right? Regardless, even, even if you don't know where the cable has been cut, you're going to notice the impact of everything yeah. going down. They're the, they're the best uh, faults because you're going to know that something's broken. If something's broken, you can go and fix it and you can blame right. something. The worst faults are the ones where you get a brownout or, or, you know, a blackout, you know what's wrong. You go and fix the blackout. Something that's kind of broken, that's the worst part. Right. Hard failures are, are, are generally nice, right? Because you, you know, something has failed. There's no question. Uh, it's the soft failures that are, yeah. that are, that are hard, right? When, you know, oh, it just starts uh, dropping one packet every, uh, every 10 packets. <laughs> yeah. There's a flood um, going through a particular area and your fiber that's buried in the pit and then suddenly it freezes and your fiber's optic performance drops by 20% or 30%. <laughs> sure. like, right. You know, I can imagine stuff like that happens. Flood, flooding, um, flooding in situations where there are, uh, where you're in, you know, 
areas prone to hurricanes or, or other types of flooding are certainly cer certainly a concern. It may even impact how you decide to mount your equipment, um, hmm. for example. Right? I was just thinking of, the, you know, we've seen, I've seen a lot of people put, you know, they create pits and then they have the fiber optic splice box inside the pit and then they drop it in the pit and go on to the, and keep running the cable and keep going. I could just imagine that, you know, there's a flood and the, the splice box actually floats up on the water and, you know, as it moves, that causes the fiber optic to change performance, potentially catastrophically or not. In, in most cases, they're, they're, the cables themselves and the splices are, are pretty, yeah. um, they're, 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 not, they're not so, uh, things like flooding and just, you know, that kind of thing isn't going to generally affect the, the cables. Okay, right. let me, let, as we get towards the end, because we're getting up on sort of, we've been talking for a while, for which I appreciate, and thanks so much for doing this. I've been looking at IP over W. IP over DWDM. So I've seen some of the vendors are sort of saying, we know about DWDM, but then what you do is you build a routed network on top of it to carry the IP. Why are we building two separate networks? And in some cases, people are building fiber channel networks or TDM networks and carrying E1s over DWDM and all that sort of stuff. And so what they're now saying is, why don't we weld the IP and the DWDM together? And one part of me is sort of looking at it going, well, that makes sense. Less equipment is better. And the other part of me is going like the more complicated the equipment is, it's a bad idea. I just wondered if you wanted to talk around that idea and whether it's a – do you think it's going to happen? I mean, they've been talking about this for 15 years and it hasn't. Is it something different in the 2020s that will make it sort of fly? No, you're right. It has been a, a big topic for many, many years. Um, another another way that this is often coined is, um, is called packet optical. Um, Several years back, I was on a on a panel at the uh, OFC Optical Fiber Conference uh, out here in California, where uh, we we actually would we discussed this uh, you know back and forth. What are the trade offs and hmm. the different aspects of of this? Um, so, so there, you know, it's it's like anything. There are trade offs, okay, and yeah. it, um, it it could be a good thing. Uh, I, I guess the the main the main thing I can say is is this right. Um, the optical interfaces tend to be, at least at this point, they they often are, are rather large for you know things like long haul applications. So, yeah. if you're building a uh, an interface that is designed to you know send a signal thousands of kilometers away, okay, uh, it may not you know putting that into a sort of a routed platform or a switch may take up a lot of real estate. Uh, and as you know, those those devices they tend to be pretty pricey, right? And so you're often looking for the highest density possible in some of those switch and routing platforms that you can get. So in that sense, um, at least at least historically, it's been you know what we've seen is that the DWDM interfaces that tend to show up on the switch and router platforms. They tend to be large, and you end up sacrificing a lot of the density that you could otherwise get uh, on those platforms. So, again, that kind of comes down to, well, okay, do you even care about the density in the box, or is that even a concern to you? Um, you know, maybe the trade-off is such that 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 is that you know that sounds really nice to you. Um, however, it it yeah. you know it works both ways, right? So yeah, that is I, that's I just, one. I was looking at it and I was going like, you know, DWM looks hard but it looks fairly simple and straightforward. And then all of a sudden I'm going to put my router engines into my DWDM network. I can see there's an advantage there. I've got less kit. But at the flip side of it, it was is that, you know, that sort of complexity creates its own problems. 
bugs creep into the hardware. Vendors are often, you know, slow to react. They often put products out that aren't very well done in the first generation. They want to know if customers are going to buy the product so they don't make a really good effort to do quality products. Um, right. You know, they're right. happy to make yep. three or four attempts at it before they get it right. And I was sort of looking at IP over, D, you know, and thinking, I don't know, I, I, I just wonder if it's better to have a router with an optical interface and just have the mux in the router and call it done for those types of applications. And maybe you have a, you know, a simple ad drop multiplexer for other applications and just keep it simple. Right. M many of the advantages that people see are uh, the fact that the layers can talk to one another, right? So maybe the router can make a more informed decision uh, based on performance information that it has about the optical layer, for example. So there are, there are certainly advantages in terms of having these layers be able to communicate with each other, right? Because historically, they've been very sort of well delineated and they, they, don't, they don't really talk to each other. Um, but, you know, you can think of this from two different, I, I, I like to think about it from two different perspectives. One, you have the, uh, the, the routing and switch platforms more increasingly adding DWDM interface capabilities into their platforms. And then on the flip side, you also have what are the more the traditionally the the optical platforms the DWDM uh, solutions are increasingly adding more packet keeping packet capabilities to their systems so it can help it can help to look at it you know from that angle you know which of those worlds might work better for you right? yeah I guess the flip side of it is that everything's IP these days you know back in the day when DWDM first started out it was carrying as much E1 T1 E3 you know, and Fiber Channel and Sonnet and ATM as it was IP packets. And these days, all that stuff is fading out. And really, the only thing that's being carried over the, the DWDM um, infrastructure these days is IP packets. So why not just converge the two and, and start heading towards where you'll be in 20 years anyway? Right. I think we'll see more and more of that, really, to be honest. Um, uh, I can't predict future, so I don't know what's going to ultimately um, – <laughs> You know, there are a lot of products that are already out to market now. Uh, you know, time will sort of tell as to what uh, what ends up really being sort of a preferred solution, you know, for 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 everybody. Wow, uh, this has been a great discussion. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Chris. Why don't uh, you tell people where they can find you on the internet, if indeed you are on the internet? Sure. Yeah, I, I am. Um, yeah, I have a website. Uh, it's just chris.chsh.us. Um, and yeah, I really thank you for having me on the uh, on the show. Um, I hope I hope others can find this information useful um, in in their work. Ah, thanks very much to everybody for listening, and a huge thanks to Chris for coming on and putting up with me being an idiot and asking dumb DWDM questions. I'm really good at dumb questions. Hopefully I've uh, impressed you with how ability, my ability to ask questions from a point of dumbness today because I certainly feel like I learned a hell of a lot. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode in your podcatcher, but you can also find them in the on our website at packetpushers.net where you can discover over a 1,000 other episodes about data networking from across our podcast networking for networking infrastructure professionals along with our community blog and our news feed. If you can follow us on pack, uh, Twitter as at Packet Pushes, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, it would be super helpful if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just pop up there, give us a few stars, and uh, maybe say something nice about us. That's always appreciated. Um, and it would be super helpful if you could tell other people about what you've heard today because uh, maybe they get something out of that. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.